Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Awesome. It's good to be here this morning. I hope you're excited. A little chilly outside. Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, what, a, what a cool day to, to be in the, in the house worshiping God. It's always a pleasure for me uh, to get to join together and sing together about the Lord, who he is and what he's done, and uh, to hear the teaching of God's word. And uh, I'm, I'm privileged to get to share with you guys this morning. I'm so excited about that. Uh, one thing before we get started, uh, Bo mentioned a marriage conference that we're doing uh, on February 28th and 29th. That's a Friday night and a Saturday morning. And uh, we have, uh, we're going to simulcast in a guy by the name of Paul David Tripp. And uh, he is a professional counselor. He's been a pastor for many years. And uh, he's going to be teaching about habits of a healthy marriage. And so uh, one of the things that we have committed to do this year is uh, we want to um, encourage you wherever you are in your marriage journey, whether it be you're at a good spot, bad spot at the beginning, towards the end, whatever it is, uh, we believe that this uh, simulcast and conference will help you. And uh, it's always good to get away and just hear some teaching from God's Word. His whole point in the conference will be that marriage is defined not in the big moments of your marriage, but actually in the little moments. And so how do you create healthy habits uh, for you guys to have and us together to have a healthy marriage. And so we'd love to have you for that. That'll be on February 28th, 29th. Y'all hear more about that uh, coming forward. And uh, next, we are in this series called Grown Up Faith, right? So we're week three already. Uh, crazy to think about where we've been looking at what it looks like to uh, be mature in your faith. What does the Bible have to say about maturity? Uh, my goal for this series was that we would walk away from it with a biblical definition of what it means to be mature in Christ and what it means to grow and uh, to help you guys have some practical next steps. Because as we continue to grow as a church and continue to reach more and more people, uh, we need you as a church to step up and begin to lead other people. And I know when you think about that, a lot of times you're thinking the person to the right or the person to the left. Uh, but we believe that every person has a purpose at our church. And uh, we believe God wants to use you. So wherever you are in your faith, uh, we would love to come alongside of you and help you grow. Uh, and the mission of our church is to connect people to a growing relationship with Christ. And so that's what we're all about in everything that we do. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. So if you can find First and Second Timothy, Titus is right on the back end of that. Uh, it may be easier to start in Revelation and flip back, and uh, you should find it there. So while you turn, I want to pray for us, and uh, we'll jump right in. So Father, we love you. And uh, God, we're just thankful for who you are. And uh, God, the grace that you've shown each and every person in this room, God, we pray as we open your word uh, this morning, uh, God, that you would find soft hearts and uh, God, that your word would penetrate our hearts and uh, Lord, that it would produce fruit. So God, I pray uh, against any distractions that would be in this room right now, God, that you would uh, clear our minds, God, and, and fix our eyes on you and open our ears to hear what you have for us this morning. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. So many of you may not be familiar with the book of Titus. Uh, I'll give you a little background on it. So uh, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles because Paul wrote them to uh, Timothy and, and to Titus who were pastoring churches. So these books are very near and dear to my heart. They're what teach me how to pastor a church when I don't know what I'm doing. And so, uh, but Titus, uh, just a little background on him. So Paul had went into the island of Crete 
which is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's kind of the middle point in all of the, the missionary journeys that Paul took. And so it was kind of in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and uh, it was an island. But here's the thing. There was a lot of people that were traveling in and through and out of there uh, as they were kind of, you know, traveling and, and going through the Mediterranean Sea. And so what Paul did was he established some churches in, on the island of Crete. Uh, one of the issues that was going on there uh, was that this was kind of like a pirate island, so to speak. You know, it's not a very uh, good place to be, so to speak, where uh, people who were there uh, were really known. You know, they would actually even call themselves uh, openly liars, drunkens, and gluttons, and they actually celebrated that. So it would have been a culture that would have been uh, hard to fit into as a Christian because uh, you did not fit into their uh, their their way of, of thinking as a liar, drunkard, and a glutton. And so Paul writes to uh, Titus, who he's sent there to kind of put into order these churches. And so you'll notice as Paul writes to Titus that he talks a lot about salvation and how salvation produces good works and how God didn't just save us from hell, but he saved us to live in such a way that people could see Christ in our lives. And so he gives them a ton of guidance uh, on how to live in the midst of a sinful world or a sinful culture that's going the opposite uh, direction. And uh, that's the thing that I believe can teach us as we look into it this morning because I believe uh, one of God's goals for maturity. Why is maturity such a big deal to God in his church? Well, I believe it's a big deal because God wants to use his church to accurately display himself to the world, right? So, and don't think about the church service, actually think about you as a believer. He wants to use us as the church to show himself and display himself to the world, right? And so if that's going to happen in my life and in your life, then we have to begin to live for God, not just on a Sunday, but actually outside into the world. So, so much so that when people look at mine and your life, they see Christ through the way we love people, through the way we love God, through the way we live our life. And uh, God's called the church to look different. He's called us to live counterculturally. And I believe as a, as a part of this maturity and, and the series, we need to embrace that. So I want to read uh, chapter 2 is where we'll be. And uh, I'm going to start in verse 1 and we'll just kind of walk through it and uh, pray that God speaks to us. So verse 1, here we go. Paul says to Titus, he says, you, speaking to Titus, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, this is a statement that's kind of full that may not seem that way, but it is. And so earlier on in the first couple chapter, or the first chapter of, of Titus, he uses this, this, this wordage again, but essentially what he's saying is you, Titus, must teach people to appropriately respond to the gospel. So what he's saying is that our lives as a Christian should be a response to what Christ has done for us, right? And so everything we do is about responding to what Jesus teaches us to do. Another way to think about it is Paul teaches them in chapter one that the gospel teaches us and produces in us and teaches us to look in three directions, so to speak. This is an easy way to think about it. The gospel teaches us to look upward to the glory of God who saved us. So it teaches us to be about the glory of God and to live for him and not for ourselves. It teaches us to look backwards at the price that Christ paid for our sin on the cross. And it also teaches us to look forward into where God's taking us and what God wants to do with our life and who he's making us to be, right? And so Paul makes one thing crystal clear in the first chapter of Titus that we need to understand. And he actually front ends the text that we're reading today 
Andy puts it on the back end, that everything in our lives should be reshaped by our experience with the gospel. When we see Christ for who he is, when we understand the good news of how he saved us from our sin and we begin to embrace the lifestyle of a Christian through the power of the Holy Spirit, what happens is our whole lives begin to be flipped upside down because the essence of sin in our lives is selfishness. So the, the, how sin plays out in our lives is we just live for ourselves. We do what we wanna do when we wanna do it and the gospel then teaches us and flips that on its head to say, no, you're not created to live for you. You're created to live for God. And I'm going to show you how to live for God. Paul teaches us that Christianity is not a to-do list of things that we need to work harder on. It's not a set of morals that you need to master. Christianity is not a bunch of rituals that you need to adopt. Christianity is not a bunch of things that you need to add to your calendar. Christianity from start to finish is essentially a response to God's grace fueled by the upward, backwards, and forward vision that the gospel brings with us. You know, it's so easy as I talk about maturity for you guys to just sit here and write things down. Well, Billy said, if I need to grow or if I want to mature in my relationship with God, then I just need to do this and do this. But what I want you to understand today is that maturity is not a list of things to do and, and not do. Maturity is when the grace of God begins to grip your heart and begins to produce fruit in your life. We've learned the past two weeks that maturity is you becoming like Christ in the way you think, in the way you live your life, and in, in, in what you do with, with your life, who you are and what you do. And then also we learned last week that maturity is about hearing the word of God, but not just hearing it, actually allowing it to seep down into who you are and produce fruit. And today we're going to learn a little bit more about it. So verse 2, he goes on and says this. He says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, and in love and in endurance. He says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So what does he do? And so he introduces this idea of the way we live should be in response to the gospel. It should be an appropriate response to what Christ has done for us. But then he starts jumping into different uh, stages of life. And he says, okay, for the older men, I want to encourage you to do this. Uh, for the younger men, I want to encourage you to do this. For the older women, I want to encourage you to do this. For the younger women, I want to encourage you to do this. What is Paul doing? Well, here's the thing is when he's writing to these people in churches on the island of Crete, uh, there were different obstacles in different stages of life that were keeping them from being who God wanted them to be. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about them. I'll let you figure out if you're an older man or a younger man or an older woman or a younger woman. I'm not getting into that. Verse six, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Notice he only gave one command to the young men. I don't know if that's because we're stupid or uh, because he, he just knew that's what they needed. Verse seven, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, show seriousness, and have a soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. He says, teach slaves or bond servants to be subject to their masters in everything, 
to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Why? So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. You see, Paul gives them this definition and he tells Titus to teach people with their jobs or who are up under the authority of others to work in such a way that they look at your life and the way you submit to their authority and they see Christ. And it's such a practical teaching for us today is the, because in the workplace is one of the hardest places for us to show Christ. But God's goal for our life is that people would look at our lives and want what we have. And that's what Paul is teaching and he wants Titus to do. Verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. For the grace of God has appeared is an interesting thing. What does that mean? It means that when Christ came, the grace of God was manifested. So if we want to know what the grace of God was, we look no further than the person of Jesus because the very fact that Jesus came from heaven to earth is God's grace to us. He did not have to do that but by his grace, he sent Christ. And so if we want to know what grace is, we look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. And then listen to what grace does. This is the point. It says, listen, this grace that has appeared through Christ that offers salvation to all people, verse 12, what does it do? It teaches us to say no to what? Ungodliness and worldly passions. And then to say yes to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us. Why? Again, he repeats it. To redeem us from all of our wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Titus, Paul tells Titus, these then are the things that you should be teaching Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So you can almost hear Paul dropping this message, this letter into a young pastor like me and saying, listen, the church needs to live differently. People don't need to look at the church and see a similar lifestyle to what they're living in the world. God's called the church to be counterculture. He's called them to grow up in their faith so that when people see us outside of the four walls of a church gathering, they see a difference in our life. And Titus, and he's saying, Paul, he, Paul tells Titus, do not be ashamed of preaching that message. Because listen, sometimes we don't like to hear the word of God. Anybody with me? Because sometimes the word of God cuts us right where it hurts and says, hey, you need to change. But Paul says, Titus, hey, you don't be ashamed of this teaching. This is God's pathway for us to become who God has called us to be. So I think there's three critical things about maturity that I want us to see in this passage today that I think will be helpful as we strive to be who God's called us to be and grow. Number one is this, maturity starts and ends with the grace of God. Maturity starts and ends with the grace of God. Verses 11 through 14 show us that grace is, is a big deal in the Christian life. Experiencing God's grace, having a personal encounter with Jesus Christ changes everything. Having a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and being filled with his Holy Spirit and being saved and God transforming your life through his grace is the only thing that can actually change the human heart. 
You know, I've told you before, I can sit up here and tell you everything that you need to do to grow in your relationship with God. But ultimately, the only thing that can solve the ultimate problem in your life, which is sin, the human heart, is Christ. That's why the grace of God is the starting point and the finishing point for everything God wants to do in your life because the grace of God has the ability to change your heart. That's the way God works is he changes our heart. He changes our mind and through a heart change and a mind change, our actions begin to change. That's how grace changes us. Because listen to this, if it's the opposite and, and I'm trying to change every person in this room thinking I'm doing a good job from the outside in, we're not doing anything effective, right? Because if our heart is bad, ultimately our heart and our mind will dictate what we do. So if I'm trying to tell you, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that, here's a rule, here's a rule, here's a ritual, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you conform to that, ultimately you will go back to your heart's desires because Christ has never changed it. You just did what Billy told you to do. It's why in the parable last week, it says the word of God and its effectiveness is to get down into our hearts and then begin to produce fruit from the inside out. You know, grace is an incredible thing to begin to think about because grace is everything in the Christian life. When you think about grace, you should think about Jesus coming to earth to offer salvation to a rebellious person it's, it's God being willing to look down on my life in my rebellion and saying, instead of staying in this perfect heaven where I am, I love Billy so much that even though he's rebellious, even though he looks at me and he's running 100 miles an hour the other way and spitting in my face, I love him enough to come down and show him what grace looks like. And listen, when that becomes personal to you, and you see that when Jesus died on that cross, it wasn't just for Billy. It was for you. And it was for every person in this room that would believe. And you see that Christ had to come and do that for you. And he did it. He chose to do it. He didn't have to. But by his grace, he came and he revealed himself. He showed us the way. He showed us his love for us. And what happens is it begins to change us from the inside out. Because grace not only saves us. I want you to think about all the things that grace does. Grace saves us. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. It teaches us to say yes to self-control, to an upright and a godly life. Grace not only teaches us, it redeems us, it purifies us, it unites the church. Have you ever thought about this? The, the way that God unites people from every tribe and every tongue is not through preference. So he doesn't say, okay, if you're this type of person, you need to go to this type of church. Or if you like this type of music, you should go to this church. Or if you're this color, you should go to this church. Or if you have this much money, you should go to this church. Or if you hang out with this group of people, you should go to this church. He doesn't do that. The church of Christ is built upon the foundation of grace, of Christ. The thing that brings people of different colors together, the thing that brings diverse people from different lifestyles together is not preference. It's not anything other than an experience with the grace of Christ to say, listen, Christ has done this for me. He's first in my life. I know he's first in your life. Let's live this thing out together. Boom, the church forms. That's what God intends for the church to be. Not only does it unite us and purify us, it also sustains us. 
because God gives us the grace we need to get through whatever this world throws at us. I want you to listen to Paul David Tripp, who's one of my favorite authors, who will also be doing the marriage conference in a few weeks. Here's what he has to say about grace. He says, listen, grace enters our life in three powerful forms. Number one, he says, the grace of forgiveness. He says, it's inconceivable to think that all our sins of the past, present, and future have been completely covered by the blood of Jesus. We don't have to work to excuse what we've done or make our conscience feel better by blaming someone else. No, we can stand before God just as we are without fear because in Jesus Christ, we're fully accepted. The grace of forgiveness not only gives us confidence and assurance, it mobilizes us for ministry. What we've experienced God's forgiveness, once we've experienced God's forgiveness, we want others to know the joy, rest, and hope that we have. Finally, the grace of forgiveness makes us want to obey. Listen, in our gratitude for the one who has forgiven us, we desire to think, do, and say things that are pleasing to him. Not only the grace of forgiveness, but the grace of enablement. He says that the grace of enablement enters our life like this. He says, because of forgiveness, we can live without fear of God's judgment. But a new fear should grip us. The fear that we don't have what it takes to live as we should. Sin not only leaves us guilty, it leaves us unable. It cripples our ability to be what we're supposed to be and do what we're supposed to do. Along with daily forgiveness, we also need daily power. In grace, God gives us the only thing that can truly help, himself. The Spirit of God unzips us, gets inside of us, enabling us to desire, to think, to do, to say the things that fit within the boundaries of his plan and purpose for our lives. God will never assign us a task without first giving us the grace to accomplish it. He animates and strengthens us with his presence so that we can say no to sin and yes to the call of his kingdom. And then finally, the grace of deliverance. He says, one day sin will die and we'll live forever, permanently liberated from the tyranny of sin. It'll be the only funeral we joyfully accept the invitation for. Until then, our dissatisfied Redeemer Father, he will not rest until every microbe of sin has been eradicated from every cell in our hearts. Moment by moment, he wars on our behalf to deliver us from the sin that still remains. He concludes this way. To summarize, grace means that we're never alone in our struggle with sin. God doesn't grow discouraged. He doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow weary. He never leaves us alone to deal with the temptations and the realities of life in a fallen world. Our gracious Father is determined for us to experience the complete spoils of the victory he gained over sin and death through his crucifixion and resurrection. And it is this grace that gives us a reason to get up every day. It's why we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. 
The beginning of every Christian life starts with grace and it finishes with grace. We never get over it. I mean, you notice Paul all throughout his writings. He never, ever got over the grace of God in his life. And that's what continually kept him motivated and sustained his growth. So my question for you is, has God's grace taken a hold of your life? You see, when we experience God's grace personally, it changes everything. And if there's no desire to please God in us, to say yes to God and no to sin, if there's nothing in us teaching us to say no to sin and yes to godliness, then it may be because we have not experienced God's grace. But the good news today is that God's grace is available for every person in this room that will believe. But for some of us, that falls on ears that think they've already experienced it. So we look at our lives and we know good and well, as Billy describes, as I describe all of these things of a desire to live for God and a desire to say no to sin, that's not anywhere in our lives. But Satan would love for us to believe that we have made a commitment and been saved to Christ. But when our lives do not reflect that grace has been there, we have not experienced the grace of God. We have not come to a saving faith. We do not have a relationship with God. And listen, there is no shame in that. But Satan has wool over the eyes of so many people in the Bible Belt so that God can't even break through because we won't let him get into our hearts to begin the process. This morning for some of us, God's grace and growth and maturity in our life starts with us letting down the wool and saying, God, I've never allowed you to work in my heart. I've been trying to do this on my own. I've always thought Christianity was just doing these things and not doing these things. But today, God's grace is available. Listen, he's not mad at you. He's not discouraged with you. He wants to work in you. He wants to work through you. But it starts with you saying yes to the grace of God. Number two, there will be different obstacles to maturity at different points in your life. There will be different obstacles to growth and maturity at different points in every person in this room's life. Did you notice how Paul broke down the different stages of life. He spoke to older men and younger men and and older women and younger women. And here's what he said, verse one, he says, teach the older men to be temperate, to be worthy of respect, to be self-controlled, to be sound in faith and in love and endurance. Is he giving them rules? What's his motive? Why is Paul teaching them that they need to live out the gospel? Remember, because God's purpose for our life is that people would look at our lives and see him. God wants to work in us so that he can work through us because he has a purpose for our life. God didn't just save us from hell. He saved us to the kingdom of God to now be vessels and agents of reconciliation in the life of other people. So he says, older men, be temperate. Be worthy of respect. Be self-controlled. Be sound in the faith, in love, and in endurance. What does he mean? He tells us early on in Titus chapter 1, he gives us a picture of when Paul thinks of maturity in the church, he, he, he gives us a list that he calls the qualifications of an elder. And here's what he says. He says, an elder must be blameless. Many of us, when we think of the word elder, we're thinking of a preacher. And yeah, that does include a preacher, but... It's also a picture of what each of us as men should be striving to be. It's a a mature Christian. doesn't mean you have to be a Christian. Or it doesn't mean you have to be a preacher. Sorry, it does mean you have to be a Christian. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. He said a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. What does he say? He says, listen, 
You got to be a good dad. You got to be a good husband. You got to take care of your family. If you don't take care of the family, how are you supposed to take care of the church? He says you got to be blameless. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're pursuing Christ and pursuing holiness. He says since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. He says you must be a good person, honestly desire what is good. Verse 8, rather he must be hospitable. He must love people. One who loves what is good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It's a man of God's word. Listen, the only light to our path in this world is the word of God. If we want to be who God's called us to be, we have to know the word of God, not only for ourselves, but for our families, for people around us. It's the only thing that we can give people that will return back what we want. So he gives us six characteristics. He says, be temperate. What does it mean to be temperate? It means that we show moderation and self-restraint. Means that we're not addicted to much wine or drugs or all these things because we have a purpose in God. We're temperate with those things. Be worthy of respect. It means we're worth following and imitating for others. It means that you're someone that you would want your son to become. It says, be self controlled. What is self controlled? It means that we're disciplined in life and we're sound with decision making. It means that we. We've learned how to say no to things that are going to destroy us and destroy our family. We've learned how to say no to sin. It means that we don't think about our own needs. We second our desires to the needs of the church and the next generation and our families. Our lives' accomplishments should not be a pile of money left in a bank account, but seeing the kingdom of God thriving into the next generation. Don't give the last years of your life to fish or to play golf or to collect toys. Give it to the kingdom of the God because you're not gonna be able to pull a hearse with you to heaven. The only thing that will sustain when you leave this earth is the impact that you made on others for God. He says, be sound in faith. He says, be a man of the truth. Know God's word and apply it. Help others apply it. He says, be sound in love. Be a loving person. Do everything you do out of love for God and love for others. And then finally, the only unique characteristic he gives in Titus that he's given nowhere else is this, is this word endurance. He says, older men, endure. If he could say it in my words, he would say, listen, you're not dead, so God's not done. Because here's the thing that he understands, and I believe this is what he's warning the older men in Crete against. He says a big temptation for older men is to get to the last third of their lives and they start to coast. Many feel like they have done enough. They're tired. They've either made all the money they need to make or they've given up. And so they start to think only about themselves, pursuing their hobbies and their interests. They weary of giving themselves to service for God's kingdom. And then they start to get grumpy. And then they start to get cynical. And that always happens when you focus on yourself. And Paul says, listen, you need to endure. Paul says, listen, stay in the game. Keep growing, keep maturing. You're not dead, God is not done. For some of us in this room, we've gotten to that place. 
You know, the world tells us that retirement is the ultimate fulfillment in this world. But retirement can no more fulfill you than any other sin can. I'm not against retirement, but I am against retirement for the kingdom of God. God never calls us to retire. He never calls us to let off the gas and coast. He calls us to be 100% in with his mission and embrace growth every day of our life. Listen, you can be in a hospital bed about to die, but you can be a prayer warrior for the kingdom of God. Listen, you have a purpose for the rest of your life if you are a Christian. There's no room, there's no time to get distracted. God has a purpose. And then he goes on to the older women in verse 3. He says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. I want to be careful here. I'm not an older woman, so I really don't know how to relate. I'm not an older man either, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. So what I did was I went and found uh, a quote from an older woman that I trust. Uh, Tim Keller's wife, Kathy Keller, talked about uh, this word being reverent in the way you live. You know, So if you're an older woman in the room, Paul's encouragement is, hey, listen, be respectful in the way you live. Don't be slanderers or gossips. Don't find yourself caught in addiction to much wine, but teach what is good. He says, listen, find younger women and invest your life into them. Teach them everything you've learned about a relationship with God because ultimately that is what you will leave here. Kathy Keller says this. When she was talking about the word reverent or respectful, she said older women can sometimes quit caring what people think. She says they lose their filters on speaking their mind and, they, and talking badly about people. Y'all don't know anybody like that, do you? She said when you are young, you have two things that, lose, that you lose over age. One is a natural physical beauty and the other is your filter. And when those things are gone, if you have an ugly spirit, there's nothing that masks this ugly spirit anymore. In truth... The ugly spirit was always there. It was just masked by physical beauty and filters. By contrast, there are older women who are so sweet that they seem more beautiful even in their older age than they did when they were young because their beautiful character shines through. Because character is more beautiful than physical charms. Listen, the Bible has all kinds of things to say about that for women. What would it look like, she said, if all we could see was your spirit unmasked by your physical beauty and your charm and your filters? If I could say it in my own words, what I would say is be more concerned about the spirit in you than you are about the physical appearance on the outside. The third group of people that he encourages are the younger women. And he says this, He says, then they can urge the younger women. I love that because he's saying, hey, older women, be here, uh, be reverent, be respectful, live a life that younger women can respect so that they want your opinion so that you can begin to invest your life into them. You know, you see, uh, when, when Paul thinks about a maturing church, one of his first thoughts is generational discipleship. He, he wants older men to take under their wing younger men and begin to teach them about their relationship with God, to teach them, hey, I did this and it didn't work out very well for me. I did this and it destroyed my family. 
I did this and I no longer get to see my kids anymore. It's taken people under their wing and begin to say, hey, I did this and it was stupid. Don't do the same thing. And for older women, the same thing. I've done this and this worked well for me. Or, hey, I've learned to spend time with God this way. Or, or teach them everything that you have to know about a relationship with God. There's nothing, nothing that Connection Church needs more than for our older men and women to begin to disciple our younger men and women. There's no greater need in our church so if you're sitting in this room and you would consider yourself an older man or an older woman, you find one of these young couples, find one of these young men, one of these young women, and you take them under your wing. Take them to lunch. Take them to Starbucks. And you just teach them everything that you've learned about your relationship with God. It's the greatest thing. Listen, I can stand up here and pour out my heart every week. But there's something about putting someone in somebody's life for them to see an example that changes them forever. Most of what I say goes in one ear and out the other. But an example is worth way more. He says, then you can, earn the young, you can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Listen, he sees a common uh, uh, holdup and, and obstacle in the maturity of younger women as they get distracted from the stage of life that they're in. When he says to be busy at home, he's not saying that a woman can't work outside of the home. What he's saying is that multiple places in scripture, we see women working outside of the home. So obviously that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that there's a tendency for younger women, specifically young married couples, younger moms, even young men and young dads to be lured away from the God-given responsibilities by the promise of fulfillment somewhere else. And listen to me, if you're a young mom or a young dad or you have young children, you only have 18 years. You have 18 years. And listen, you got the rest of your life to make money. You got the rest of your life to build a successful business. And what's for value in the Christian life is that you spend those 18 years with your child teaching them the ways of God. Listen, for some of us, we've gotten saved after our kids are born. So we got less than 18 years. And what, what Paul's saying is we need to make the most. We need to sit down and have conversations with them about our faith and begin to set an example and model for them for that. That means way more than providing this luxurious lifestyle could ever mean to them. Your kid's not going to be able to pull a hearse behind their casket. There's no U-Haul that comes in behind that hearse. What you leave is the impact that you make on them, what you teach them, who they become because they've followed you. Listen, are we people that are, we want our kids to be? That's a very convicting statement. The six, verse six, he goes on to talk about the younger men and here's what he says. He says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. I told you this earlier. He only gives us one characteristic because either he knows we're stupid or that's all we need. Verse 7, in everything, he says, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and the soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. 
Interestingly, there's only one word of exhortation he gives specifically to the young men, and he says to be self-controlled. Why? Because if you had to boil down the Achilles heel of most young men in this room today, it is that they are ruled by their desires. We respond to our desires for pleasure. We're controlled by our desires for recognition. We respond to our lust. And here's the thing I know, guys, if, if, there's, if we could get this one thing, and I, I really believe it's why Paul only pointed out one thing. If we could get this one thing, what God could do with a group of guys that could simply learn to control our passions, our desires, and our lust, if we could learn to do that, I believe God could transform the world through us. But there is no greater obstacle that you will have to overcome in your life. Listen, there will never be a day as a Christian where you don't have two monsters inside of you. One's a good monster and one's a bad monster. The bad monster is your flesh. It's the lifestyle that you've habitually created by living for yourself. It says, whatever looks good, whatever tastes good, whatever seems good, I'm going to do that. It's selfishness, it's sin, and it leads to destruction. But it will never go away. And then on the other side, you have the good monster that says, hey, live for God. Hey, this is what the Word of God says. Hey, invest your life in what matters. Hey, prioritize your schedule to make much of Christ and to be with your family and to, to teach them about Jesus. But what happens is our autopilot will always be geared towards the bad monster. And so until the Word of God begins to produce fruit in our hearts and we begin to think and allow the Word of God to, uh, to, to transform our minds, what will happen is we will not be self-controlled people. Being self-controlled is learning to say no. And many of us, our biggest issue in life is we can't say no to what seems good to us when we know it's against the Word of God, even though we know it's leading to destruction. And we need to ask God for his grace to be able to do that. D.L. Moody, a great pastor, said, The world is yet to see what God can do with one man who's totally sold out for him. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through. J.C. Ryle, another great pastor, says, Being ruled by the desires of your body will murder your soul. Will you, be, will you be ruled by your desires or will you be ruled by the word of God? Young men, that's our battle. And some of us, including myself, need to become self-controlled in every area of our life. So my question for us, not just young men, not just young women, but older women and older men is what obstacle is in front of you and your growth and your maturity right now? Is it like the young man where you need to develop self-control and not chase your passions and lust and pleasure? Are you the older man that needs to endurance, that needs to be pressed to say, hey, let's continue to move forward in our relationship with God. If you're not dead, God's not done. Is it the younger women who tend to be distracted with the things of the world instead of uh, being at home with the younger, younger men, the same thing, and not being focused on your family and the 18 years you have to invest your life into them? Or is it the older women who are the older men who need to be investing your life into someone younger than you 
What is that obstacle that God's asking you to overcome this morning? Number three, the goal of maturity is that our lives would make the gospel attractive to outsiders. I kind of started with this point. I want to end with it as well. Verse nine, Paul says to teach slaves or bond servants to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Why? So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Why is maturity such a big deal to Paul? Why is maturity such a big deal to God? Why is maturity such a big deal in the church? Why, does it, why, does it, why is it what I pray for for our church? Because God's purpose for his church is that we would reflect Jesus to the world. That's his goal. God's purpose for the church is not for us to have an awesome service. God's purpose is that we would go into the world and be the church. I say it like this all the time. God's purpose is that you would scatter from this building today on fire for God in such a way that when someone sees you, they see Christ. Because here's the reality. The only Christ that some people in your life will ever see will be you. He wants people to look at your life and want God. You know, it's the most effective evangelism strategy. I think about the first connect group I was ever a part of. I remember sitting around that circle. I was nervous. It took them forever to get me there, but I finally showed up. And I sat around that room and I was nervous and my hands were, were sweating. And as these guys went around the room, all six of them, and talked about their relationship with God, the thought on my mind and the thought in my heart was, Billy, whatever they have, you don't have. But the second thought was, I want it. It was the greatest evangelism strategy ever. You know, I think about a, a connect group leader at our church right now. She's, she's uh, her and her husband have led a few small groups and they've been able to multiply them and God's just done some incredible things. And uh, meanwhile, they live right next to her parents and her dad's kind of sat back and watched what God has done and how people have been coming and getting saved and baptized. And then it would grow to like 20 and then they'd you know, multiply out and then they'd start small and then they'd grow again and then they'd multiply and start small. And they've just seen the growth of that, the growth of our church. And what's happened is they begin to ask questions. Begin to say, what are y'all doing in there? Like, why are all these people coming? And then they go and then they come back. Like, what's going on? And it's given her an opportunity to share the gospel and share what Christ does when the church is more about a family than it is about an event to attend. It's an incredible evangelism tool. The sad reality is it is detrimental to the mission of God in a community when unbelievers see little distinction between themselves and their friends who are associated with the church. You know, when we scatter from here, but our lives look no different than the people in our community, what happens is ultimately people begin to look at your life and the truth that they hear, because it's no different, is that the gospel is not true. It does not work. It does not transform people's lives. And you don't even ever, ever have to say it. Because our lives speak more than our words do. And God wants us to mature because God wants us to be an accurate reflection of his church. So my question is this, is your life attractive for the gospel? Do people look at your relationship with God and want what you have? Listen, here's the greatest news in all the world. God has placed eternity in the heart of every man. 
That means when somebody sees Christ in you, God's already rigged it where they want it. Even if they fight it, even if they act like they don't, as we continue to live out the gospel in front of them, what they see is something that their heart desires. It just may take a little while to do it. So as we leave here today, that's my encouragement for you. I want you to bow your head right where you are. What's the biggest obstacle to your growth and maturity right now? What is it? Is it similar to, to, the, to the people in Crete that Paul's writing to? Is it distraction from what matters most? Is it you need to begin to invest your life into some other people? Is it self-control? Is your life attractive for the gospel? Do people want what you have? Listen, it starts with the grace of God. Has the gospel changed everything in your life? Has there ever been a point in your life where you've come face to face with Christ? Listen, I love a song that we sing here. It's a version of Amazing Grace, and it talks about seeing God on the cross and seeing the love in his eyes. Has that ever become a reality for you? Have you ever come face to face? I'm not asking, have you ever been to church? I'm not asking, have you ever checked a box? I'm asking, has the grace of God ever transformed your life? If it hasn't, today's the day God's knocking on the door of your heart, and I pray you'd respond. If that's you in this room, and you say, Billy, that's me, would you just lift your hand and say, Billy, that's me. I want it today. God's grace. I wanted to transform me from the inside out for the very first time. Would you be bold and just lift your hand up right where you are? I want to pray for you. Anybody in this room? Say me. Absolutely. Amen. Amen. I'll give you a second. Anybody else? So, Father, I pray. Lord, I thank you, God, that you still respond to us in our honesty. God, we know we all fall short, but, God, your grace is bigger. So Father, I pray for the people in this room. God, I know you have a plan for our church. God, I know you have a plan for every life in this room today. So God, I pray whatever the wool is over our eyes, God, whatever the hardness is in our heart, if there's there, Lord, I pray you'd knock it down. God, I pray you would speak directly to our hearts. And God, whatever that obstacle is right now to our growth and our maturity, Lord, I pray you would bulldoze it down. God, I pray you'd grow us into the people that you want us to be. So, Father, raise us up. God, use us for your kingdom. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you back next week.